and welcome back to a fifth and final episode in this mini season of Coffee and Covid. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and found the episode interesting and informative. There's been lots of new things that have become normal in and out of hospital over the last four to six months. Things like the social distancing, the wearing of masks, or just the heightened awareness and staring at someone that dares to cough. Plus, I've gone back to anaesthetics, which I thought would be a really nice break away from intensive care, but actually we have to treat every person that's having an operation as if they are infected. So we still have to wear the full PPE and all the masks and everything. So it's not been a a complete breakaway, but it has been a nice break from intensive care. So in this episode, I catch up with one of my close friends and GP, Dr. Mark Goddard. We both went to medical school in Aberdeen together in the far north of Scotland. And we also decided to do a bus trip together around the east coast of Australia when we were at medical school. Amongst many things that happened we went to Steve Irwin's zoo and in one of the auditoriums they were asking people to do their best impressions of animals and I was really keen to get involved and they put a camera on anyone that was doing the impressions uh, well and the camera landed on me and then they announced that my impressions were so good that I was the winner of the prize and I was so super excited about it. There were lots of children and parents of the children looking really upset about it and what was my prize? It was a magazine for 8 to 12 year olds so maybe I shouldn't have been as enthusiastic as that. Anyway, away from the sunny climbs of there, Mark is working up in Scotland and I started by asking him if he felt there was a difference between the Scottish and the English responses to the coronavirus outbreak. Well, I think that the key key difference from my point of view was that Scotland and England both shut down chronologically on the same date, but Scotland was a week or two behind England, certainly behind like London and Birmingham. So as a result, Scotland shut down earlier in the natural progression of the disease. So as a result, it was as if it had shut down earlier than England had. So I think as a result of that, you would hope that Scotland's numbers would be lower, but there's so many other factors. So Scotland uh, is a much more widely dispersed population, fewer people across a greater area. So we've not really, even in Glasgow, we've not got anywhere you could properly compare to London or Birmingham or Manchester. I almost think there's been a sense of people that's gone looking at what England are doing and going, well, England are doing it, so we're not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like the World Cup sort of thing, like supporting England. Yeah, exactly. Anything that's against England. (laughs) Yeah, I I think every time an English footballer breaches lockdown rules it really helps Nicola Sturgeon's case uh, for more stringent lockdown in Scotland. Don't don't be like Carl Walker. That should be the public public health message across Scotland, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mark also had plans to go to Australia. He said it was to visit his sister out there. I think it's because he was jealous that I won the prize at Steve Irwin's zoo, and he was just going back there to prove that he could also do animal impressions. Either way, because of travel restrictions, he had some issues there. So we were due to fly on the 13th of March. Um, it's quite it's quite funny looking back at it because it felt that the week building up to it felt like a really tortured, difficult decision about whether to go. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, 
um, we hadn't really changed what we were doing in the UK. That was the week that Boris Johnson said, I went into a hospital and I shook hands with everyone. Um, so there was really a kind of downplaying of it. Um, and I got very embroiled in trying to obtain as much information as possible to make that decision. Um, and it felt really difficult. And then well, I'm glad we didn't go because in the time we would have been flying overnight from the Friday into the Saturday, Australia introduced a 14 day quarantine. So we would have got on the plane, assuming we were arriving normally, arrived, had to quarantine for two weeks and just come back to the UK. Could you pick your place of quarantine? So could you say the beach? <laughs> yeah, we'd be off to Byron Bay again. <laughs> I guess they would have packed you off in somewhere and that, what you would have had to come straight home afterwards then, essentially. I think so. I think so. Um, but then within the two weeks we would have been there, things massively escalated and you were hearing of people scrambling to get the last flight home or paying £10,000 to get a flight that came through the last country that would take you back. So I think it would have turned out to be really difficult to get back. So healthcare has changed dramatically across the board due to the coronavirus outbreak. I've seen what's been happening mainly from a hospital point of view. But I asked Mark what primary care has been like and what has happened in his experience as a GP. Went away and came back at a very odd time. I went on two weeks of holiday on the 13th of March uh, because I was due to be going to Australia. I then came back two weeks later to a completely different job. So on, on the 12th of March, we were seeing patients in person. You had your big list of 10 minute appointments. You had a couple of phone calls, people booked in. You came to see them. It is what you imagine general practice to be in the UK. And I came back, and I think probably the day I came back, two or three patients entered the building and everything else was done as telephone calls. Patients who you were bringing in to see were thing, just things that you couldn't properly assess over the telephone. So abdominal pain was a really common thing that you couldn't really get too much of a grasp of over the telephone. Or people who sounded quite unwell and you just wanted a set of observations on them but the way it was being done was that you would pick up you would speak to them over the telephone get all of the history that you could possibly get and say to the patient I'm going to be bringing you in the following parts of what we're going to do when you're here I'm going to check your blood pressure I'm going to check your temperature I'm going to check your heart rate I'm going to feel your tummy and then if you need a prescription, I'm going to get you to go in the waiting room. I'll clean the room. Then I'll print the prescription and bring it out to you in the waiting room. You sort of shift from, from what you had been doing. And the, you were just trying to absolutely minimise the amount of time you were in the room with the patient. When I first came back, you were splitting the patients you were seeing in the practice into sort of three categories. Uh, so the first category would be just general patients who were bringing down who you felt you had to see. The second category were patients who were being seen for anything but were patients in the shielded group. So patients with any one of those seven categories of uh, chronic illness or disease, that meant that they were an extra protected category and they were being seen in a separate room through a side door in the practice so they didn't come into contact with other people. And then the third category were respiratory patients who you thought probably weren't COVID but still needed to be seen who you saw in a sort of red respiratory room. It's one of the really crazy things to think about, actually, is that before COVID, 
we always had lots of respiratory illness, lots of respiratory diseases. The whole coronavirus pandemic meant that everything was assumed COVID. And it was almost as if other viral uh, illnesses or respiratory illnesses, other pneumonias weren't there. You just assumed it was that and then took a deep breath when you realised it wasn't, if it wasn't. And it's a lot of kind of difficult, the whole thing evolved. So you were learning more and more about these atypical presentations of people who just had a bit of abdominal pain or people who presented three weeks after they were ill with COVID toe or all these things that we're learning about that people had afterwards. Uh, and I think we're still at a position where you speak to somebody over the phone and they've, they've got a cough and you think, that really does sound like exactly the history they've given with their cough with COPD for years. But now they've got to go to the COVID hub, hub and have a swab and things before you think about the, the COPD. And d- did you see some of these other things as well, like the COVID toe? Uh, so I have not seen COVID toe, but I was working a GP out of hours shift uh, a couple of weeks ago. And a, a very excited GP came through and said, I've seen my third case of COVID toe this week. Uh, How do you so, treat it? Uh, so you don't. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so it essentially it's mostly happening it what it seems in milder cases of COVID in younger people who are at home and then they get what look like chillblains on their toes but with no history of exposure to the cold. Right okay and so you just get the history, diagnosis of elimination, and then announce that it's COVID toe and that we're not going to do anything for that. Yes, but, but the important thing is to be very excited about it. So what was it like doing face-to-face appointments in GP? And did he notice a drop in people attending that needed to? I know from anaesthetics that we weren't doing any routine operations, so there's a big backlog there. How has it affected primary care? So we would make an appointment with them having already spoken to them over the phone and taken their history. You would get them to pull up to a side door at the at the practice and phone when they arrived. You would then go and put on the minimal but some degree of protection PPE, go out to the back door and hand them one of the surgical masks to put on as well. Then you would walk them through to the room that's being used for high risk patients, do just the examination that you explained to them you were going to do walk them back to the door and send them into their car, take your PPE or clean the room and then go back to your normal consulting room and phone them back to discuss what you had found on the examination. It was, and remains, I think, a much less personal process. And I think also most GPs would probably do some of the examination, some of the questions at the same time. So you lost a bit of the dynamic nature of, doing an examination, finding something and thinking of another question to ask while you're doing it. About the timing as well, because consultation, 10 minutes, how long does Um, each one of these take then in total? So we were giving those appointments 20 minutes uh, to allow for the PPE, the cleaning of the room, uh, the examination of the patient and then calling them back. And the initial conversation doesn't count towards that? No, so they were sort of separate consultations. So you could almost be doing 25, 30 minute consultations, really, when you take everything into account. So almost yes. like three times yes. the amount of time. Yeah, okay. that's, that's right. But in the start, for the first two weeks of the, of the lockdown, we were frankly very quiet. People were just not coming. And then there was a big public information campaign because 
people not coming to the GP is quite worrying because just because of COVID, all the other reasons you need to come to the GP don't go away. What sort of things were not coming that you felt should have been coming? Well, I think one of the big worries amongst the GPs was that um, the way you refer in general practices, there is a an electronic referral system. And when you refer someone, you can select three categories of urgency. There's routine, urgent and urgent suspected cancer. So urgent suspected cancer is your most rapid referral. Uh, and those the statistics from that type of referral dropped off a cliff for um, the first month that the, the COVID things were here. And there, there was not less cancer because of COVID. There were just fewer people presenting with the signs. Um, and I think the worrying thing is that everyone would say, oh, well, if I if I thought I had cancer, of course, I would come to the GP. But for loads of cancers, the signs are so vague. It's hard for medically trained people to pick them up. It's even harder for members of the public who have not been medically trained to pick up signs of these cancers. I've not seen a sort of huge sign of it yet, although we are now working at the point where all our appointments are full again. But I think there's a big worry in general practice that there is a huge wave coming behind at some point of the people who put stuff off during the worst of the, the lockdown. But I think also one of the key things you learn as a GP is that prevention is better than cure. So coming in and get something sorted early or coming in and sorting something to do with your lifestyle that means you never develop an illness or a disease is much better. But that's the sort of stuff that people haven't been coming about. So our worry is that there might be a wave of more worse and later presenting disease that's somewhere in the background. So GPs moved from face to face to telephone and video consultations. And I wondered how all that started. Also in medical school, we're taught the importance of non-verbal cues. Is there a risk that you lose that in video consultations? I think we were all kind of learning on the job together. We've gone through kind of an iterative process of developing things. So most things are being done over the telephone. There were some things that were being done as, as photographs. So you could get people to send photographs to a secure email address. Videos themselves have only just really come into being something we do. But actually there is only really reasonably limited use of things that can't be a telephone call or a photograph but also you don't need to see in person it's quite a narrow window of things that video is the best solution to and have you uh, what's the system you use then for videos where i am we've been using a thing called nhs attend anywhere you give people an appointment and a link to your practice and it has a sort of uh, virtual waiting room that patients can go to and then you click on them and bring them into your surgery and and very much like we're doing with a Skype conversation here where we see each other by the video is, is quite like this. We're trying to deal with a lot more risk in a very different way and I remember very much Jimmy Hutchison who is one of our orthopaedic surgery lecturers at university telling us that you should always go to the waiting room and walk in with your patient because you can tell so much about how they are from how they walk to the waiting room with you and I've always remembered that and it's incredible how much I feel I've lost of my sense of they're well, they're not well, just by not walking with someone from the waiting room to the consulting room. So there's been drastic changes in GP land. Is this forever? And is it a good or a bad thing that these changes have happened? 
I think GP will never be the same again. And that is probably a good thing. Uh, some of the things you've noticed with telehealth are people who have jobs or children. It's much easier for them to have a phone call or a video call than come away from their job or bring their children in from home. So there is a huge amount of, if you do this in a patient-focused manner, there's a huge opportunity for people to have tailored medical experiences that are better for them. Um, I think it's going to change a lot of of how we do that. Um, and I think perhaps in terms of telehealth, you know, Scotland in particular has lots of people who live on... Uh, remote islands and don't have access to certain specialist services and things I think there's going to be a huge amount of opportunity for them to do it and it's very much like if you think about um, uh, people who have gone through hard times in the world medicine as with all technology moves forward faster through necessity so we've probably been waiting to do this for ages and this is the thing that's forced us to do it in the same way that the wars have forced p the progress of stronger antibiotics and uh, and uh, treatments for limb amputations and things all got pushed forward by the necessity. Telehealth, to my mind, is one of the biggest things that will improve as a result of this. As for all aspects of healthcare, it's been a very stressful time. And I asked Mark how he de-stressed and what positives he's seen in the last few months. The, the thing I've I've sort of likened it to is I, I imagined sort of your stress throughout the day as being sort of filling up a water jug that you can then remove the bottom from with the things that you have uh, built into your life to de-stress and over the last few months it's really felt like there is more stuff coming in the top and less opportunity to pull out the bottom of that jug uh, and you I've definitely had to kind of develop new ways of doing things and it makes you realize how much you were relying on some of those things you were doing for stress relief when they're taken away. And that has been really difficult, I think. And it's exactly as you say, uh, my screen time now is so much higher than it was because uh, I'm not even turning to patients to talk to them anymore. When you're talking to them, you've got their medical record up on a computer screen. So you're looking at them all day. And then when you come in and the only way of, uh, uh, debriefing is to then go on Zoom or Skype or FaceTime. You're just looking at a screen all day. It's been a real sense of kind of camaraderie and getting through it together, uh, which has been really positive. And I think um, there is lots of hope for how telemedicine might change things in future and people who perhaps wouldn't have been GPs before might be able to engagement with remote communities. That will all be you know, really, really positive things that I think will uh, will get better out of it. <laughs> On a personal note, I work quite a long way uh, away from where my practice is, and my commute has been fantastic. <laughs> uh, it, it has it has dropped by. Sometimes I'm driving for a third of the amount of time that I was that I was driving in December. So that has been great. Um, I, I think the worst thing that could come out of this now is that the world goes back to exactly how it was and we don't learn the the things from this that we that we could be learning my hope is that we can think of a way i've never seen people so focused on connecting with people important to them and phoning people and, and that and i hope we hang on to that sense of 
spending time on people who are important to us and putting effort into caring for people like that. And I also hope we don't go back to the way we were abusing the environment before. And I see lots of people walking, cycling, using electric scooters down the road that I live on when previously it was full of cars. So maybe there's some really positive changes to the world that can, that can come out of this. Everyone has been affected by this pandemic and me and Mark talked about one of the biggest personal things that has affected us. And the other thing I wanted to bring up when talking to you today was that uh, I think probably both of our biggest losses throughout this have been that we've both been forced to shave off our beards. Uh, <laughs> and I think I think it's a miracle that as a result of that, neither of us have, have become single during this process. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that bad. <laughs> I was really worried when I shaved it. I've not seen my face without a beard for years and I really did worry what was going to be underneath. Yeah, I, I kind of feel, I don't know, I feel that I can... I'm allowed to shave, whereas before I felt like if I did, it was some sort of criminal uh, <laughs> event. Whereas now it's like it's, an, it's a necessity. So that's it. Thank you for listening and subscribing. Please do share this mini series around. And if you're feeling generous, please do give it a five star review on your podcast app. Please do also check out my other podcasts. There's The Comedian's Surgery, where I chat to comedians about their health stories and experiences. And also, if you like The Witcher game or The Witcher Netflix series, check out Dandelion, The Witcher and The Wardrobe podcast too. You can follow me on Twitter. I'll put some links in the notes. Music was created by David Curran. You can find links to his work and more also in the episode notes. Take care and... I hope we meet again.